Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Chapter 1. Before Breakfast Where's Papa going with that axe? said Fern to her mother as they were setting the table for breakfast. Out to the hog house, replied Mrs. Arable. Some pigs were born last night. I don't see why he needs an axe, continued Fern, who was only eight. Well, said her mother, one of the pigs is a runt. It's very small and weak, and it will never amount to anything. So your father has decided to do away with it. Do away with it, shrieked Fern. You mean kill it, just because it's smaller than the others? Mrs. Arable put a pitcher of cream on the table. Don't yell, Fern, she said. Your father is right. The pig would probably die anyway. Fern pushed a chair out of the way and ran outdoors. The grass was wet and the earth smelled of springtime. Fern's sneakers were sopping by the time she caught up with her father. Please don't kill it, she sobbed. It's unfair. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at The Times. Today's topic, finding your voice. So this will not be the only podcast we will devote to the topic of voice, because there's so much to discuss. In fact, as we were preparing for this episode, Lane inundated me with material from some of her talks. This is a topic she spent a lot of time thinking about, and it's so important that a writer develop a strong voice. So, Lane, you wanted to start with Charlotte's Web. Why? Charlotte's Web was the very first book I ever read to myself completely. And it was the very first time that I realized that a writer could have a voice that wasn't who you would think they were. So I remember reading the beginning of this story, thinking that it was written by like a young person, a young girl, and um, turning the book over on the back. And there was a picture of this old man. And I just couldn't like reconcile how this old man could write in such a strong voice and headspace of a little girl. And I, I mean, my eight-year-old self was like, mind blown by this whole thing, you know, and I kept asking my mom, are you sure that's the writer? Are you sure that man wrote that book? And it just sort of set me on this path of, of understanding that um, your writer's voice didn't have to be your demographic and exactly who you were. And you talked about those, you know, those first six words. Where's Papa going with that axe? It's the best opening ever. I mean, I feel like that's the world's greatest lead. It's like it, it establishes this little girl, because it's Papa, it establishes something country, because it's not father or right. daddy. Um, and it's an axe. It's Something's a little girl happening. watching her dad kill you an axe around, you know. It's <laughs> like, there's the perfect, like, I don't know, cliffhanger right there. And if it was a Stephen King novel, we know it's going in a different right. direction. Um, so you were an English major. Um, you must you must have re- relished reading strong voices. So talk about sort of that evolution, too. You, you mentioned examples like Dorothy Parker. Um, the Confederacy of Dunces, um, the Curious Incident of the Dog at Midnight, right? Some of these things, and what what's going through your head as you're reading these things? Yeah, I think I, I think I've always been drawn to stories with a strong voice. I mean, I, I was an English major, and 
I remember getting into some of the like the Victorian novels and especially like Vanity Fair and like even like Wuthering Heights and stuff. And I was like, well, this is so boring. <laughs> I mean, the voice, the voice was almost non-existent there. It was like these, or well, maybe it was the voice of these poor like Victorian women stuck in a castle in the Heatherlands somewhere. I don't know, but that wasn't the voice I was interested in. It didn't move me at all at all. So I was always interested in um, finding stories that, that, sh- took you to transported you to a place through a character's voice you know confederacy of dunces uh, by john kennedy it was uh, john kennedy o'toole yeah is maybe one of the best voices and the most weird voices because it took me a few pages to get into that voice you know what i mean but once you were there you can't book. escape it's a really <laughs> weird book and the curious incident of the dog at midnight is told in the voice of a autistic boy mm-hmm. so a teenage boy with autism and the world is like super crazy weird and scary but a few pages in you're just right in there with them you know right I was going to ask you to define voice, and then I read that you said it was like porn. <laughs> yeah, you, you know it when you see it, you know? <laughs> like, you know, it's what you like when you hear it. I don't know if you could define voice. I can define lack of voice better than voice, maybe. I think voice is authority and control. Like, I, I feel like a writer's voice um, is all about that person really understanding the story they're trying to tell and how they want to tell it. And that's when that voice you know, is strongest, is clearest. I mean, I think that's what, and then you each, as you get older and you do more stories and you become a better storyteller, I think you can, you can take more authority and take more control and sort of develop that. But it's, yeah, it's confidence. I think in, I mean, that's kind of like authority, but also confidence in your material. You know, you can tell when you read something that someone's like noodling around because they don't really know it. They don't really own it, you know, and that feels very um, inauthentic. How long do you feel? I mean, did you think about that consciously when you were a young writer that you had a voice? (laughs) No, 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 not at all, especially because I covered news for like the first 10 years, you know, and and I think I was trying very hard to have that like news voice. And if you read my stuff, especially from college, it sounded like I was some like, you know, hard scrabble academician administrator. You know, I was textbook. It was very textbook journalism. Yeah, it was trying to be smarter than I was too and using these big words. And it wasn't at all about making it easy for the reader. It wasn't about making it for fun for me. It was like, I thought a newspaper story should sound like this, you know, and just the facts, ma'am. And it was painful for for some of the stories. And it wasn't until I actually kind of like got out and reported my stories live instead of just doing interviews or meetings and stuff. I started covering commercial fishing and being out on a boat at dawn, going into the waves at Oregon Inlet and watching the dolphins and hearing the fishermen and smelling the salt water. It kind of became this immersive experience where I was like, I can't leave that off the page. I have to include some of that. And I don't know that was as much about voice as it was just about like kind of learning to soak up the scene and that your story could be more than just the facts, you know? Um, I think voice came a little bit later, and I don't think it was conscious of me trying to figure out what's my voice. I think it was much more me trying to figure out what's the voice of my character, you know, and and then inhabit that world so that if I can get inside your head and sort of learn to use your thought processes or your language, I can write the story in that person's voice. I mean, I think E.B. White has a very different voice for Fern in Charlotte's Web than he does for you know, the cricket in Times Square, or especially from some of his adult novels. So it's, mm. it's kind of like, well, I like the analogy of the Beatles, right? Because I, I want to hold your hand, and I am the walrus. It could not be more different in terms of genre and composition, but you can tell it's the Beatles, you know? Mm. So I think that there's this kind of sweet spot between 
having a voice that people can recognize as yours and being able to adapt it to the material so that it sounds different every time. Because sh- the last thing I want to do is have every one of my stories sound the same, you know. But so, but let's talk about what makes Elaine de Gregory's story unmistakable, because I think there are things that make your stories your stories. I mean, I think I could cover up the byline, and I know I would know it was Elaine de Gregory's story. I love when people say that. Like, I read the whole story, and then I didn't look at the byline, but I knew it was yours. Right. And I like, I love that. So I don't. Know, I'm going to put you put you on the spot, and you're not going to be able to define yourself. I will. I will tell you what defines it for me. I think, I think your stories are like a smooth drink, right? I mean, they. They always go down easy. I'm never fighting my way through it. I'm getting drawn in. Uh, we just had a podcast that was very sexual, so we, but we're going there again. But <laughs> I mean, I feel seduced by your stories. Like, you know, there's this promise of intimacy in your stories. And, and at the end, it's always powerful. There's always a purpose. I feel sometimes surprised, often surprised, I think, even though I probably have some sense of where you're going, but I still feel rewarded. So, I mean, that to me is Elaine de Gregory's story. Right, and it's gonna make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I think the people who are listening to this, that to them is Elaine de Gregory's story. I mean, you know, it just if, uh, the details are so rich. I mean, I feel like you, you, you definitely have a signature. You have a like. So, what, what do you feel like? I mean, do you? I, I think my story is maybe the thing that I try hardest at, and that I want people to take away from it most is to feel something. You know, mm-hmm. um, whatever the emotion is, I, I, I'm really good at imparting information. I can do a news story in my sleep. You know, I know what to do for that. But I think if I can connect readers with an emotion, you know, I, I had an uh, email from a, a college student the other day um, who said he read the story that I wrote. And he, he was a sports wannabe sports writer. And I wrote a story about um, we talked about the Susie Weldon and, and right. this race car driver's widow. And he said, I'd never I'm 21 years old. I've never cried when I read any story in my life. And I cried when I read your story. And I was like, yes, <laughs> you know, I, I I pick emotionally charged stories on purpose, but uh, even in stories that don't have an emotional component, I want to tap into something there. Right. Let's see. So, all right. Um, and I'm also, I think, maybe one of the reasons I, like, still love E.B. White and would read that over a lot of, uh, you know, more erudite writers still, I love simplicity of language. I don't right. write with a lot. I'm terrible at similes and metaphors. I challenge any of you guys out there to find a good one in my stories because I just, I write them and I write them and I write them and I take them out because I don't feel like they're that great. So I try to go back and be real, real simple in my language and in my storytelling. Um, and that way I think it has a wider appeal too. Even if it's a difficult or complicated subject matter, I want to make it, you know, Fern in Wilbur style. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, you had found this quote from um, Connie Hale, who used to be with the Neiman Foundation, which I think is really, it's a great quote. Um, Voice separates brochures and brilliance, memo and memoir, a ship's log and the old man in the sea. Uh, the best writers stamp prose with their own distinctive personality. Their timber and tone are as recognizable as their voices on the phone, which is a great thing to aspire to, I think. Huh? Hi, bar, Connie. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you talk about how it's 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 hard to find that balance. So, right, a distinctive voice that people know you, but also you're not trying to do the same thing over and over again. You don't want every story to sound the same, right? So, what's how That's do a you challenge? How do you do that? What do you do to try to like do you, or do you fa- see yourself sometimes falling into that and then you sort of recover and say, well, I got to write it a little differently because it feels too predictable? Yeah, though I went through a period there, I think right before I came to you, <laughs> when I was writing almost all of my stories had like a three sentence lead. You know, it was like, 
this was this, and this was this, and this was this, and then. And I go back and read them now, and I'm like, oh, God, why didn't someone stop me from myself, you know, because the first one was good, and the second one was okay, and by the fourth one, you're like, oh, this this chick doesn't have any imagination whatsoever, <laughs> you know. Um, I, I went for a long time where almost all of my leads started with a clause, and then I started stopping myself from that, you know. Um, so I, I think being able to sort of try to inhabit your characters helps a lot in terms of switching things up because, you know, the old homeless man catching a fish off the bridge is going to have a really different st- Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details voice than the little girl trying out for the ballet you know and so that I think that helps me um shake myself out of it a little bit if I can try to pretend like okay what would this guy tell his story like Mm -hmm. what would this little girl tell her story like yeah that's a good 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 advice um we were going to discuss this coverage of an oil spill because we were talking about how that really illustrates different voices and how you might approach the story. So if I've, we've got three different leads, three different ways to this coverage, and maybe you could set it up with, like, I mean, this must have struck you at the time, how these different people approach that story. Yeah, I was thinking about voice, and I know a lot of people talk about um, impediments to voice being the publication. Oh, my newspaper would never let me write like that. Oh, you know, my magazine would never publish something like that. And I hadn't really considered the voice of a publication until I wrote my master's thesis on USA Today. And USA Today was coming in, this was in like the, the early 90s, and sort of changing the way that all newspapers, it was like you know, like cable news coming in and all of a sudden all the little colloquial local papers were becoming the same format. Um, so I started paying attention to that, like how different publications tell the same story. And um, this was when we had this big oil spill here in Florida and I was reading different versions of it. Um, so the AP, the Associated Press, was, of course, what you would exactly think the Associated Press would be, just the facts, ma'am. A Florida beach was closed to visitors for the first time because of the Gulf oil spill Thursday as workers tried to remove pools of black sludge from Pensacola Beach's once white sands. I mean, that's lovely and simplistic and very AP factual. Uh, The Pensacola News Journal, which was the little local paper there, seemed very uh, familiar to the local people. It was writing to the local people, right? Uh, The sign at Pensacola Beach Properties boasted, always has been, always will be, the most beautiful beaches in the world. Not on Wednesday. And I like that, too. I like the little turn they took. I, I like that they're sort of owning. It's not about the oil spill. It's about their own little beaches, you know, their little piece of the world. And then my colleague, Ben Montgomery, wanted to write. I think he said, I want to write a more like thinky, reflective piece. I'm going to go up there and just see what I can find. Thinky, a thinky a, piece. A thinky piece. Instead of reporting it, he wanted to make people feel like what it was like to be there. Um, by then, everybody knew there was a damn oil spill, you know, and so he wasn't trying to convey the news. He wanted people to feel like what it was like to be there. Um, and I love this lead that he wrote. The tide came in Tuesday night under a moon almost full. And when the sun came up and the water retreated, there it was a broken band of oil about five feet wide and eight miles long. It looked like tobacco spit and smelled foreign. 
and it pooled in yesterday's footprints as far as you could see. State officials called it the worst show of crude on shore from the gusher 120 miles away. Now, I, I especially love that it looked like tobacco spit because I never would have thought about that, but Ben chews, so he knew. <laughs> and it's such a great analogy, you know, but it's also something Ben could bring to that story that probably nobody else would have come up with, you mm-hmm. know? Um, you suggest searching for voice like an actor, kind of inhabiting the character, and we've been talking about that a little bit. But um, So how do you not lose yourself? Um, I mean, and ha- you know, how does that work for you? What do you try to do? I want to lose myself. Do you? I mean, I'm always me. I know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> I know what I can do on autopilot, you know, if I have to. Um, but I, I want to be able to, like, I, I think one of the most fun things about journalism is just like actor, every day you get to be somebody else. You know, one one day you get to be, you know, a lifeguard on the beach in a hurricane. The next day you get to be a city council member trying to get fluoride out of the water. I mean, the the breadth of whose lives we get to inhabit is so rich and incredible. I never want to take that for granted. You know, and that's that's one thing I love about covering general assignment too. I mean, I got I, I got really sick of covering governmental meetings and stuff like that, but. I, I think it's such a treat to be able to pretend you're somebody else in your words. And then it gives you an excuse to ask them, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? You know, so the reporting goes a lot beyond what they're saying or what they're doing. You know, you you, you had talked about like how important word choice and syntax and dialogue dialect um, from people that that's you. So you're you, all of that's helping you sort of inhabit who they are and try to bring to life. You know, the voice of the character, the voice of that story, right? Yeah, and listening for, like, idioms and the way people talk and, and like, the things they don't want to answer. I didn't ever pay attention to that before, but now, like, if someone won't answer a question or if they're fidgeting, you know, you pay attention to those quiet moments. Um, A lot of people have catchphrases, you know, and I love – I think that tells you a lot about something. I I covered this – hockey coach one time did we talk about the hockey coach and all he would say was that's hockey and and I just love that that was like you knew who this guy was because he had nothing to say other than oh that's hockey you know what I mean um my son and his friends made up a bunch of words when they were young and it's so fun like I can go back in time for a minute thinking I (laughs) there was a time when I told him they weren't allowed to call anybody a bitch anymore because I was tired of hearing that bitch that bitch so they made up this word beepa and it still sticks there's like hundreds of kids in St. Petersburg now calling people beepas because this word became something of their little you know community of eighth grade friends that's that's stuck and carried away and so I just love things like that that it's like really individualistic language that you can apply to find people's voices so talk about how uh Edwin Wolford and what you did in terms of voice with that story so Edward was um I met him through assignment to cover a um, clubhouse for people who had mental illnesses and you know the scene at the clubhouse was people making sandwiches and sweeping the floor and, and stuff. And I was like, okay, I need I need action. I need something happening here and somebody who has something at stake. So they said, oh, go talk to Ed. He's about to go get his first paycheck today. And um, they had gotten, Ed was in his 30s, I believe, and he, 39 years old, and um, he had never had a job. He'd never held a job. So this clubhouse got him a job at a sub shop, at a firehouse shop, making subs. And he was going to ride his, he worked there, I think, a week, maybe two weeks, and he was going to ride the bus to the sub shop to pick up his first paycheck. So I asked if I could just ride with him. Um, he was incredibly nervous. He, he didn't want to talk to me to begin with. He was just kind of nodding along to me. And oh, I didn't want to make it worse for him, you know. So I kind of, I, I said, I won't talk to you on the bus. You know, I'll talk to you afterward. But, like, I want to go with you. 
So um, he let me do that. And then I kind of interviewed him afterward about what were you thinking? What was going through your head? I, I wrote down that he was fidgeting, that he was cleaning his glasses, that he kept wringing his hands, that he put his head in his hands in his lap, that he was breathing hard. So I wrote down these kind of observational things, but it didn't mean anything until I asked him why, you know. So this is the big the beginning of the story. I was going to say that's a really good point too, just to make because I think a lot of reporters will watch it and assume what what's going on, and you and you can't assume what was going on because they might not. Who knows? I mean, right. I I remember uh, I had a reporter once who covered a um, an exhibit where there was a uh, a KKK robe hanging up, and the woman was looking at it, and she she kind of was holding on to herself and like squeezing herself. Um, and then we were trying to describe this moment, and we didn't know whether it was she's gotten the chills because she's seen the KKK robe, or it's cold in this museum. You know, <laughs> like what was it? So um, anyway, I just thought that was an important point too that you don't you you gotta you gotta you can see what people are doing, but you don't always know what what's inspiring that. Right, and unless I mean, you could I could have written that down, and it would have been interesting, and it would have um, signaled to you that he was nervous or something right. was happening. Right. But I couldn't give the meaning behind that unless I asked him. Right. You know what I mean? And a lot of people, pe- times people be like, why are you asking me this? <laughs> but, because c- I need to know, right. you know? Um, okay, so this is the beginning of the story. He worries all the way to the bus stop. What if I'm too slow? What if the guys at work are just pretending to like me? What if I forget and put the salami on top of the pepperoni? He shuffles along the sidewalk, his hands shoved deep in the pockets of his gray cardigan, blue eyes scanning the ground through square glasses. His shoulders hunch up as if he were trying to disappear inside himself. What if I miss the bus? What if I weigh out too much turkey? What if no one talks to me? What if everyone talks to me? What if I get fired? He's been fired before 15 years ago, or was it 20? He's 39 and and can't really remember the last time he held a job. This time's going to be different, though. He promised. He promised everyone. His mom, his new boss at the sub shop, the guys at the clubhouse. He's been taking his meds. He's been working hard to make this work. He's been on the job now. Well, this will be his ninth day. Today is the last Friday in July, Edwin Wolford's first payday. How do you make sure that you keep that voice all the way through? Yeah, sometimes I don't, and I have to go back and fix it. <laughs> it's like an actor who's who's got an accent for a, for a role, and then sometimes they forget. It is. It's it's hard sometimes, especially when you get to the point where you're like, okay, I have to give you the information. You know, I'm going to give you the background of how this clubhouse was built and who funded it and why they saw a need for it, and that can't really be in Ed's voice. So then I have to think about, like, how would Ed see that? How would he perceive it, you know? I mean, sometimes the most complicated stuff is easier to tell if you can break it down in somebody else's voice, you know, and let them sort of explain it to you like that. Mm -hmm. So I think I remember asking him about when he first heard about the clubhouse and why he thought it was something that was important, you know, and and able to have that um, perspective when I'm writing the informational pieces too. That was a great beginning too because it just like it showed all of his anxiety, all, you know, just how tightly wound he was. When I remember consciously deciding not to put his name in there until afterward because I wanted it to be more every man like he mm-hmm. so you don't have his name until after you already go through all this angst with him because right. if it had started out like Edward Wolford worries all the way to the bus stop all of a sudden I think you care a little bit less than if he's an every man mm-hmm. you know that's a good point so we need to end with the uh the end of Charlotte's Web right because we can't we got to leave you with uh something from the 
from the end of the book here. So. My favorite ending ever. And please, if anybody you know is in charge of putting things on my tombstone, this is what I would like my epitaph to be. Wilbur never forgot Charlotte. Although he loved her children and grandchildren dearly, none of the new spiders ever quite took her place in his heart. She was in a class by herself. It is not often that someone comes along who is a true friend and a good writer. Charlotte was both. The end. I can't ever read that without crying. A true friend and a good writer. Please let me be that. On that. That's all I aspire to in my world. <laughs> on that note, if you have a question for Lane, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.